Well, good morning, City Light Church. You can have a seat, and as you do, uh, I have one important announcement to make before we begin, and it is this. The tomb is still empty, y'all. The tomb is still empty. Last week, we celebrated Easter, and we saw that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death, but that was just the beginning, because for the last 2,000 years, the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead has been making dead hearts come alive, and that same Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to come back, and he's not going to come back to die on a Roman cross again. He is going to come back to reign and rule on this earth, and he is going to gather his people, those who have trusted in his name, and we will be with him forever. Amen? Amen. That is still good news. Uh, Well, it is great to be with you today. My name is John Randall. I am actually the director of our college ministry here at City Light Church, and it is my joy and my privilege to be unpacking God's word with you this morning as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. If you didn't know, we actually have a college ministry here at City Light. It's called City Light U. Uh, That is the letter U as in university, not the word U. Uh, We are not a Pilates class where you come and discover yourself. Uh, Not that that's a bad thing, Uh, but we are a college ministry that is all about Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're a college student or in that age range, I would love to meet with you. I'd love to help you get connected. And so come find me after the service. I would love uh, to talk with you. Well, if you haven't already done so, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. For the first 18 years of my life, I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and I was a frequent visitor to the beach. I loved going to the beach. Now, I know looking at my pale Scandinavian white skin, you're probably wondering, like, has this guy ever been outside? Uh, But I loved going to the beach. Uh, In fact, I still love going to the beach. Um, And one of the things I would do when I was a kid is I would often race out to where the buoys were. I'd race my friends or try to beat a personal best record. Uh, But before I'd go, before I'd race out to the buoys, my mom always gave me this warning. She would say this, John, be aware of the undertow. Be aware of the undertow. Well, what's the undertow? The undertow was all of the currents that existed underneath me in the water. And some of them were actually dangerous. Some of them were like a rip current that could literally pull me out to sea. And many people drown in rip currents. And so one of the ways in which I would try to deal with these currents is that as I was swimming out to the buoys, I'd be constantly looking back to the shoreline to see if I could see something that was stable, something that was rooted and grounded, like a lifeguard stand. I'd keep my eyes on that. So that way I always knew where I was at. But here's the danger uh, with these currents is oftentimes they're happening underneath you and you don't really feel them pulling you away until it is too late. And so sometimes I would not keep track of the object, like the lifeguard stand on the shoreline, and I would just get caught in the moment trying to beat my friends to the buoy, and I'd forget to look back until finally I did look back and realize, oh no, I can't see the lifeguard stand. The shore doesn't look recognizable. I am out to sea. I'm farther away from it than I thought. I am caught in a current. I am in danger. Well, this morning we're going to see in our text that just like my mom gave me a warning about a physical current, the Apostle Paul, the author of Colossians, is going to tell us to be aware of spiritual currents. 
In other words, the Apostle Paul is going to say, hey, look out, be aware of the systems in this world that are going to seek to pull you away from Christ, much like a current would pull you away to sea or out to sea from the shore. Instead, look to something that is stable. Look to something that is rooted. Look to something that is grounded and is real. And Paul is going to say that that stable reality, that grounded shore that will help us know where we are at, that reality is Christ Jesus the Lord. But City Light, I, I don't want to just review a sermon. I don't want to talk about a church that existed 2,000 years ago because I believe that the Word of God actually speaks to us today. I believe that it can speak to our church right here, right now. Because we too live in a culture that is filled with all kinds of currents that will seek to pull us away from Christ. And they will leave us empty and dead on the inside. Let me give some examples. Billions of dollars are spent every year trying to convince you that you are not content. That you are not satisfied. That joy, true contentment, is waiting just around the corner if you could just buy this new iPhone, this new TV, this new car, this new house. The, the, the proverbial message of our day is that we get to define happiness. That, that true meaning and purpose and contentment in our life is defined on our own terms. And we're convinced that if we just had a different circumstance, then we'd really find all we're looking for. A different job, a different marriage, a different salary. If we had that, then we'd really be happy. And if we're not careful, if we're not taking inventory, if we're not looking at what we're believing and what we are pursuing, then we will drift. We will get caught in the currents of this world, and they will compete with Jesus until eventually they reduce him to just the guy that got you a ticket into heaven. Rather than setting Jesus up as the son of God who not only can save you from hell and bring you to heaven, but can actually satisfy your soul. As I put this sermon together, I believe the Holy Spirit has brought to my mind a question, and it's been convicting me at every turn. And the question is this. John, do you believe Jesus is enough to save you? Why do you struggle to believe he's enough to satisfy you? Church, I pose that same question to you. Do you believe Jesus is enough to save you, but struggle to believe he's enough to satisfy you? No matter where you're at this morning, there is good news in this text because we're going to see that the fullness that is offered to us in Christ will bring true joy, true contentment, not just in theory, not just in philosophy, but in reality. And so I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get right into it. This, this passage is essentially going to bring two contrasting ideas together, and I want us all to see it. Here's the first contrasting idea. If you're taking notes, you can fill in this blank. This is point number one, the emptiness of worldly philosophy. The emptiness of worldly philosophy. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, if you're a philosophy major, uh, Paul is not saying that you need to drop out of school and change majors. 
Uh, in fact, Paul's not after what f- the way we think about philosophy. No, the way we think about philosophy is that it is simply a love of knowledge. It's a pursuit of wisdom. It asks questions like, hey, what is the meaning of life? How did we get here? How do we define existence in reality? And, and in fact, I would argue the Bible's not against those questions. In fact, uh, there's an entire genre of literature that is dedicated to those questions. It's called the wisdom literature. It's books like the Psalms and Proverbs and Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Instead, what Paul is after here in the book of Colossians is a particular type of philosophy that is empty, that is deceptive. And it was threatening to take the church in Colossae captive by drawing their faith and affections away from Jesus. See, see, this wasn't just a system of beliefs that the Colossian church checked their box to on a survey. No, this was an, an entire worldview that was taking them captive by trying to convince them by this lie that there's joy to be had outside of Jesus, and it was ultimately enslaving them. Paul says any teaching that is going to pull you away from Christ is ultimately empty. It works like a placebo. If I were to go to the doctor and I said, hey, doc, I'm sick. Can you please give me some medication to help me feel better? I'm expecting that what the doctor is going to hand me is a pill containing the necessary ingredients that will help me feel better. What I'm not expecting the doctor to do is to give me a placebo, an empty pill. Because here's the danger about a placebo. It might look the same. My mind might convince me that it will help me feel better. It looks good. But at the end of the day, it will not have the necessary ingredients to help me get better. And Paul is saying any teaching that says fulfillment can be had outside of Christ or in addition to Christ, it's like a placebo. It is empty. It will always overpromise. It will always underdeliver. It will always suck you in. It sounds good. It looks good, but it's not the real thing. And the proof is in the pudding because not only is the teaching itself empty, but it will ultimately leave you feeling empty. Paul is going to move on, and in that verse, he provides three characteristics that this empty and deceitful philosophy is based on. The first is that it's based on human tradition. It's based on human tradition. This meant that the philosophy was promoting human speculation over and above divine revelation. It was saying, hey, the word of God is a good place to start, but if you really want all you want out of life, the Bible is insufficient. You need to add some other things. You need to add some rules, some extra knowledge, some wisdom, some good principles, maybe take a few classes, and then you will really achieve your life goals. The word of God is okay, but it's not sufficient. I was talking to a guy in our church uh, the other day, and we were talking about this scenario that we've begun to notice that uh, there are a certain type of people that when you go up and ask them this question, hey, are you a Christian, they will respond by giving their entire spiritual resume, right? I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, uh, but I will go up to somebody and say, hey, are you a Christian? And this person will respond with, oh, yeah, I go to this church. I was baptized when I was a baby. I've taught in Sunday school class. I'm part of a Bible study. I've been married to my wife for 14 years. I tithe every Sunday. I'll show you my tax return. It'll prove that I've given to the church faithfully. And it's like, whoa, dude, I just asked if you were a Christian. 
I didn't ask for your entire spiritual resume. See, they can tell you their religious activity, the rules that they live by, the churches that they attend, but can they tell you the gospel? Church, a Christian is so because of the gospel, period. A Christian is so because we didn't live the life we should have, but Christ lived it for us. In fact, Christ died the death that we deserved, and he rose to a new life that he wants to impart to us. Believing the gospel is what makes a Christian not your spiritual resume. Rules and knowledge and principles and classes and religion, they're not bad things, but they can be dangerous things. Because they can pull us away from Christ. They can captivate us with their empty philosophies and usurp the word of God. Jesus promoted a similar teaching in Mark 7, 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. City light, may we always be a church that holds to Jesus and not religious tradition. The second characteristic is that it is based on the elemental spirits of this world. Now, scholars will disagree as to what the details of what Paul is saying here, but they all essentially agree that Paul is after this. He's after this idea that there are spiritual powers that will use the physical world to try and get people to turn away from Christ. Let me give you an example. Money is an innate physical object, but we can turn money into an idol, in other words, we can place God-like demands on it, expecting money to satisfy us in only the way that God can. And when we do that, there are spiritual powers at play. There are dark spiritual forces that will come underneath that idol and beef it up and play it up and say, yeah, you're right. Money is better than God, isn't it? Money will give you the affections and the pleasure that God can Money will give you more control over your life. You shouldn't surrender control to God. You should surrender control to money. There are spiritual forces that play up these idols. Paul is going to speak to this more and give more clarity to it in another book, uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, 8 through 9, it says this. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's. But now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, we cannot entertain any teaching that would pull us away from Christ. Why? Because sin is never spiritually neutral. Sin is never spiritually neutral. There are very real spiritual powers. There is dark spiritual powers in this world that would seek to pull us away from Christ. And so rather than entertain those philosophies and those teachings, we need something grounded. We need to look to the majesty and glory of Christ. Because when we do, the dark spiritual elemental principles of this world will grow dim. They will be exposed as the weak, worthless idols that they really are when compared to the grandness and majesty of Christ. The third characteristic that this uh, philosophy is based on is that it is not based on Christ. It's not based on Christ. That's ultimately what makes it deceptive and empty. This is the main thing we need to know about this philosophy is that it's not based on Christ. Now, that doesn't always look like this philosophy is going to 
be completely directly opposed to Christ. Oftentimes, these types of philosophies will try to compete with Christ for your attention and for your affections and for your lives. Now, I want to be helpful this morning because it's one thing to teach, hey, this is what the philosophy is for the Colossian church back then. But, but what about us? What are similar philosophies that are facing Omaha, that are facing City Light Church, that would challenge us here today and pull us away to hold us captive and keep us away from Christ? There are several directions we could go here, but let me share one that I think that plays out in my own heart. I often fall into the philosophy that says the approval of other people is where it's at. Get the approval of other people and you will really find the satisfaction, the joy, and the contentment that you want. That's the lie. That's the philosophy that will oftentimes hold me captive. In fact, my entire day sometimes is all about a quest to get more approval from other people. Let me give you some examples of this. These are these are kind of dumb, but this is how it plays out in my own life. Uh, very quickly, when I came on staff here at City Light, uh, I began to notice that the entire staff owns a pair of boots. Like, I'm not joking. They all own boots. It's like we work at a construction site. And so <laughs> wanting to fit in, wanting to get the approval of the people that I work with, guess what I did? I bought a pair of boots uh, because I want to fit in here at City Light. I've also noticed that, hey, I I would love it if Gavin, Chris, and Cameron thought more highly of me, that that they would, their approval of me would soar. And so one of the things I did was, hey, maybe I'll get into some things that they're into. Maybe I'll get into basketball, and maybe I'll get into country music, and then they'll like me more. But it hasn't worked at all. Uh, I don't know if you can tell by looking at me, I am terrible at basketball. Uh, I'm not athletic. Uh, at all. And country music, I just can't get into it. The only country music artist that I like is Kenny Chesney, and that's just because he sings about the beach. Um, It's about the only one that I like. I've also noticed that like half the staff is graduated from like Wayne State University. (laughs) And I'm conflicted here because it's like, was that a prerequisite to get hired here? Like, do I need an honorary degree? Like, I'm, I'm trying to like get the approval of the Wayne State grads Chris says it's the Harvard of the Midwest, so maybe I need an honorary degree. But then I talk with Gavin, and Gavin says, John, an honorary degree from Wayne State's like an oxymoron. That just doesn't exist. Um, So I don't know who to go after for approval on that one. I I, I struggle so much with this that I've begun to notice that I do this as well. I, I will go out of my way to try to get people to think, oh, John doesn't really care what I think about him. Right? Like, I will do things in my life to get a person to think, hey, John, he doesn't care what I think about him. And yet, what have I done in that moment? I am still showing that I actually care what they think about me because I'm still trying to alter that person's thinking. This quest for approval never ends, it will leave me empty. This is more than just a system of beliefs. This is a captivating worldview that will pull me away from Jesus. And it will diminish perhaps one of the greatest treasures that I have in my faith. And that is the approval that I have from God the Father through Jesus Christ. See, the approval of God should matter more than the approval of anyone else. Because God is the most supreme being in the the universe. 
His approval should matter more than anyone else. And yet so often in my life, it doesn't. But here's the thing that is amazing about God's approval. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to convince God to like me. I don't have to convince God to give me approval because I have it completely through Jesus Christ. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees his perfect, spotless, blameless record. It's as though all the accolades of Jesus have been deposited or accredited into my account. And that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus and he says, this is my son. I 100% approve of him. Well done, good and faithful servant. I was also reflecting on this. You know, when people have approval of me, the only thing that they can think about about me is mere opinions. Whatever people have of me, it's an opinion. Opinions are fleeting. Opinions change all the time. But God doesn't have an opinion about me. God has a declaration over me. And that declaration does not change because it has been secured through the work of Jesus Christ. That approval means more than anything else. I have all the approval I need in Christ. City Light, what philosophy is pulling you away from Christ? What are you looking at to bring ultimate joy and satisfaction in your life? Is it leaving you full or is it leaving you empty? More importantly, how do we guard against the worldly philosophies that would seek to pull us away from Christ like a current would pull us out to sea? This leads me to my second contrasting idea that Paul makes, which is this. If you're taking notes, again, you can fill in this blank. The fullness of Christ's presence. The fullness of Christ's presence. So we have the emptiness of worldly philosophy against the fullness of Christ's presence. Verse 9 in Colossians 2 says this, For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Church, we could preach an entire series on that verse alone. It is packed full of goodness. What this verse means is that Jesus isn't just like God. It means that he is God. This is unbelievable, fantastic News, because it means that God is not some impenetrable force that exists far away, that is disengaged and disinterested in your life. No, God is a person who is very much interested in your life. In fact, he proved it by showing up on our own turf in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is God in a human being. Let me say that again. Jesus is God in a human being. That's not a mystical thing. That's not a transcendent thing. That's a palpable, tangible reality that's history. This is absolutely remarkable because our culture is tempted to think that if we are going to find true purpose, true meaning for humanity, then it's an idea that has not yet been discovered yet. That we have to keep searching, that we have to keep looking for that. Some people look to the stars to determine their fate. Other people want to hitch a ride to Elon, with Elon Musk who's taking spaceships to Mars and saying, hey, if we could just explore the universe, then perhaps we can find what we are really looking for and why life exists on earth. But Christianity is something completely different. Christianity would say that God is not some faraway ideal that we have to discover or meditate on to really experience. Christianity would say that it's all about a real person who is Jesus Christ the image of the invisible God. 
You don't need a telescope to see God. God is standing right in front of you in the person and work of Jesus. I think sometimes we treat God like a political candidate that we voted for. Like we, we agree with him on some things, but we're not expecting him to come to our house every Friday night and talk about how his policies directly impact our lives on a personal level. Church, God is not some political candidate that we vote for. God is an empathizing Savior who is so much interested in our lives that he's willing to put on human skin and be like us in all of our weaknesses. Now, it doesn't end there. Paul's not out just to prove that Jesus is God. He also wants us to discover what this means for us. He wants to show us what this means for us. Again, picking back up the text in Colossians 2, this is verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Church, this is a radical idea. It doesn't mean that we become God, but it does mean that the fullness of Christ can dwell within us. Let me put it to you this way. Because Christ is the fullness of God, we can find fulfillment in him. That's what it means to be filled in Christ. Because Christ is the fullness of God, we can find fulfillment in him. Because he fills us with his presence, the very thing we were created for. What Paul is saying is that we don't need an extra dose of worldly fulfillment Because we are already full in Jesus. We've been filled to the top with the power and presence of God himself. You might need to top off your oil. You might need to top off your coffee here this morning. Lord knows I did. But you don't need to be topped off with Christ. Because with Christ, your filling can be full. Your glass doesn't have to be half empty or half full. It can be overflowing with Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. As a parent, your kid's energy can seem limitless, can it not? Parents in the room, right? Full confession here this morning, there are times when I want to drug my kids. (laughs) There are times when I just want to take my kids into a room and be like, today is over, go to sleep, we're done, right? Just full confession there. Uh, One of the the ways in which uh, my kid's energy is on full display is that every night we have this bedtime ritual where I will pick up my two oldest girls and we will spin around as fast as we can. They are convinced this is a ride, and they will ask for this over and over and over and over and over again. I'm convinced they would do this until they threw up. Like, that's how much energy they have. But for me, I'm done after like two, right? Like, I'm nauseous. I'm, I'm ready to throw up. It feels like I just got out of the octagon. I am done. I'm tired and exhausted. But I keep doing it, and there's a reason I keep doing it. Because I see the joy and contentment that fills my kids' faces. This stupid ride becomes worth it because of the joy and contentment that fills my kids' faces. And as I was doing this ride, I began to reflect that just as I have the ability to fill my kids' faces with joy and contentment through a dumb ride, God has the ability to fill me with joy and contentment through his very presence. But there's a massive difference between the two. I get tired. God doesn't. God never gets tired. Jesus is more like my kids than he is like me because his energy and drive to fill me is limitless. 
I can trust that Jesus will always be able to fulfill me because he is full of God and you can't exhaust God. This reminds me of a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He writes, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again! And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. If running the everyday moments of his creation never gets old for God, imagine the excitement Jesus has in filling empty sinners with his presence over and over and over and over again. Because Jesus is God, he has the appetite of infancy to fill me to the brim. But what does it mean to be filled with Christ's presence? What does a person who is fulfilled in Christ look like? Let me give us some examples of what I think this looks like. I think it looks like a freedom to love other people and not use them for social gain. We don't have to use people for social clout because you already have all of the social notoriety that you could ever want because you've been welcomed into God's kingdom through Christ. It looks like sacrificial love for your spouse where you're not trying to find completeness in your spouse. You're not projecting a savior-like complex on your spouse because you already have a savior in Christ. You can love your spouse unconditionally because you've already been filled with the unconditional love of the Father. Your chips aren't in on marriage. Marriage is not the thing that you live for, but the marriage is the thing that you live for, the marriage between Jesus and his church. Your marriage just simply points to that. It becomes a conduit for the gospel. It looks like risk-taking for the kingdom, where you serve in the church, and maybe you serve in a place where your gifting is not there. But you know what? You say, hey, I am free to fail in this position because Jesus has come along and redefined the definition of success, and he has achieved the only victory that matters. It's not about me in the kingdom. It's about him. It means giving financially more than you ever have before. Because in Christ, you've been given the richness of his presence. You can't outgive what God has given to you in his kingdom. We all can give in a response to what God has given to us. It means silencing the voices of self-hate, condemnation, guilt, and shame. Because Jesus has said, my grace isn't just a little bit good enough. My grace isn't just average. My grace is completely sufficient for you. On the cross, it was finished. It means an overflowing thankfulness that brings joy into any circumstance, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult. Because we know that if Jesus walked through the cross, then there's nothing left to fear in this world. It means peace in an ever-flowing currents of this world that will try to get you and me to be convinced that we are restless and unsatisfied. But church, that is not the way we learn Christ. We are rooted, we are built up in him. 
at the end of the day, it means that we can have ultimate satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment, because it's in Jesus that our greatest problem was dealt with. Our greatest problem is not a social problem. Our greatest problem is not a political problem. Our greatest problem is not a family problem. Our greatest problem is not a financial problem. Our greatest problem is a sin problem. We have committed cosmic treason against the Lord of the universe. We have said, God, you don't have the right to govern my life. I will govern my life. I will define what happiness and success and fulfillment means on my own terms. I don't need you for that. We've committed cosmic treason, but here's the thing. You and I are hardwired for God. And so the minute that we rejected God, we have now begun a search to replace him with anything and everything we could get our hands on. We have taken created things like sex, money, spouses, kids, education, success, health, even ourselves, and we have put ourselves on God's throne. We've placed God-like demands on those things, expecting them to deliver what only God can. It's created a scarcity problem in our hearts because none of these things can fully satisfy us and fully deliver the way that Christ can. Just like Christ, or just like the head is the animating source of the body. It controls where the body is going to go and what it's going to do. Jesus is the head of all creation. He controls all of creation. This world is Christ, and he will not allow the powers of spiritual darkness to co-opt it and sell it out to humans as idols. And so Jesus has come. He has come to restore his rightful rule and reign on this world, and he's conquered these lesser gods, and he offers us his lordship once again. But here's the thing. Some of us, I think, can say, well, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, that sounds constricting. That sounds harsh. And the reason we react that way is because the dominating philosophy in our world is that personal freedom and autonomy, the right to determine our own fate, are king. How's that working out for you? See, I believe that when we've been captivated by lesser gods, when we know what the emptiness is that those things bring, then the kingship of Christ doesn't sound like a crushing dictator, but rather a loving Savior who has come to deliver what we've really been after. City Light, let me close with this. Each week we get one hour. We get one hour to come in here, sing some songs, hear from the word, maybe hang around, grab a donut, and then we leave. And we will leave to a world where for the rest of this week, you and I will be bombarded with argument after argument after argument that is playing up captivating philosophies that will try to pull us away from Christ. They'll try to convince you and I that we are incomplete and that Christ isn't quite enough for us and that we are not enough with him. I know I'm experiencing this right now. It's cold outside. It's April. It's snowing. I have sick kids at my house. My washing machine broke. I want a vacation. (laughs) But a vacation is not going to fully satisfy me the way that Christ can. Let me tell you my hope and my heart for all of us. I believe the word of God offers us far more fulfillment than we could ever dream. I believe in the richness and pleasure that we can have in Christ is beyond our wildest imaginations. And it's my hope and my prayer that we would never move past Jesus 
Church, Jesus is not a guy that we bring out every Easter. Jesus is our only hope, and we will declare that every Sunday here at City Light. Would Jesus be our treasure and not our stuff? Would Jesus not just be the guru for our schedules, but would he be the leader of our lives? Would Jesus be the one we walk with, connect with, hear from, and serve? I'm convinced there's no better way to live on this side of eternity than daily coming back to Jesus and saying, it's in you that I'll be satisfied. It's in you that I will find contentment. It's in you that I will find joy. Would we come to know the fulfillment of Christ's presence over and above the emptiness of worldly philosophy?